Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luer, and I'm delighted to have another true industry veteran on the other line with me here, all the way from Detroit, Michigan, Mr. Andrew Craig. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks, Marcus. It's uh, great to be here. I know you've had many uh, uh, great names on the show, so I'm uh, a privilege to be one of your guests. I don't know. I, I'm excited to have you on it and, and, and even more excited to really dig deep into your amazing stories um, and your career here. Uh, because it's just, you know, you're another one of those sort of, you know, that's good. I know most of you guys don't like when I call you veterans because it somewhat also means you're a little bit older, which you are, but uh, it also means you bring these amazing experiences with you, um, which we'll be talking about here. And uh, as usual, let me just sort of do a quick intro um, and then we dive straight into your stories. So uh, Andrew has been around for, in, in at least in our industry, for more than 40 years. Um, and you are one of the early members of ISL Marketing, where we're going to dive into uh, deeply for a bit. Um, and then you became the uh, CEO and later on, I believe, chairman of CART. And so you went into the motor racing world. Um, and for the last 20 years, you've been running your own company, the Craig Company, um, as a consultant in multiple areas, Olympics, uh, et cetera. And again, uh, we'll dive very deep into this. But uh, you hail from uh, the UK, studied in Liverpool, have your MBA there from uh, on the Liverpool University. Um, so let's jump back in there. Uh, somewhat in the early 1970s, you got, your, you got yourself started. Please uh, tell us a bit about it, Andrew. Sure. I mean, the first thing I should say is that uh, anybody listening to this podcast who thinks um, they're going to hear about how to structure a career will be greatly disappointed because <laughs> I, I think my career is probably one of the most unstructured you could possibly imagine. Uh, even now, I still wonder when I might get a proper job, to be to be frank. Um, but I, you're absolutely right. My career started with, with Nestle. Uh, or actually, I was working on, on the Finnis brand. And Nestle is a truly wonderful company to work for, disciplined, professional marketing company that really provided a terrific training, mm -hmm. uh, including some time on the road as a salesman, uh, selling fish fingers, which All was right. an interesting experience. But I tell you, well, you, look, you know what out of stock means when, when you have an unhappy uh, uh, store manager shouting at you. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I was in the marketing department there for, for three years. Uh, as I said, it was really great training. Uh, I learned a lot of skills, right. which actually I find even, even today, some of the things I learned there I think are still relevant uh, all these years later. There was one significant problem with Nestle. Although they provided a great, great training, they didn't provide a whole lot of money, to be frank. <laughs> and, <laughs> okay. You know, because they didn't need to, I, I guess, because who doesn't want to work for a company like that? So... Uh, but anyway, after about three years, I decided I would make a move into advertising because I had quite a lot of contact with uh, our agencies while I was with with, uh, with Findus and Nestle. Mm. And uh, what was clear, that, that was a great-looking lifestyle and also significantly more money. So I moved from there uh, after three years to a company called Connell, May & Stevenson, mm -hmm. which is something of a boutique at that time, uh, known as CMS. Uh, based in Soho, and I worked primarily on some Unilever business, which is actually, they hired me because of my Nestle background, right. uh, but also a lot of automotive business with Shell, 
uh, and with the company called Motor, Motor Circuit Developments. And curiously, although this is completely unrelated, hmm. uh, on, on the Shell business, actually I was working on uh, uh, their motorsport exploitation program. And MCD, Motor Circuit Developments, owned four racing tracks in, in the UK. So there's a curious connection later on in my career. Wow. Um, okay. So that, that's already how the first seeds were planted here somehow, right? Yeah, somehow. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. However, I, I guess the, the most significant thing that happened to me uh, um, during that time was working on the, the Adidas business. Right. Uh, and I'll come back to that in, in one minute. Um, but I spent um, six years there. Right, okay. And then along with Connell May, it seems, I formed a company called Blake Communications. Okay. Uh, it's called Blake because we're in William Blake House. And William Blake House is called William Blake House because it was built on the, uh, the birthplace of uh, the artist, the engraver, the visionary. Some people might say lunatic, uh, but the... <laughs> Incredibly interesting individual called, of course, William Blake. Right. So we called the company Blake Communications. We were primarily a uh, public relations, promotions, and promotions company, hmm. um, mostly in the automotive field. It's an interesting side comment. One of our clients was Lada, the Russian car company. Okay. Yeah. And people used to joke about that. So, you know, these little boxy little cars. But I got to tell you, Those cars were marketed by people who knew what they were doing. Um, they were offering people a chance to have a new car, people who normally would have been in the second-hand car market, right. and their profit margins were spectacular. I mean, they, right. they were very professional guys. So, so this although, is in the 80s we're talking about here, right? I mean, uh, uh, We're talking about <laughs> the – yeah, now we're in the 80s, correctly. Yeah, yeah. And, wow. um, but, but I tell you, those were – Strange little cars, but incredibly <laughs> profitable. And they, they were a great client. Yeah, there are not many client. people who probably even recognize that name anymore. Is, are they still around? I'm, I'm not even sure they I are. I think they're still around. They are. I, I, I think they are. In oh, fact, okay. you said they are. Definitely. Well, amazing. Now, that, that, that's a great start and, 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 a, and, a, and a fun little warm-up here. So so coming out of your own company um, and sort of, you know, after a couple of years, I guess, uh, Izel came on your radar. Um, where did, where, how did that transition work, um, by, you know, leaving your own business and, and jumping in there with, uh, with Horst Dassler? Well, uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago, and I said I'd come back to it, that I, I worked on the Adidas advertising account right. in, in the UK. And I, I guess I must have made a good impression on them. Hmm. I used to go over to the headquarters a couple of times a year, right. uh, give a, a presentation on our media buying performance uh, and also on our, our creative work. And at that time, although I didn't know him well, quite frankly, Uh, but I did get to, to meet and, and know Dassler, mm -hmm. uh, kind of a very interesting guy. Um, but also I met with Jürgen Lentz. Jürgen at that time was the uh, the marketing director, uh, international marketing director for, for the company. And, of course, he subsequently went on to to ISL. Um, this is actually, just to digress slightly, uh, th this really was a, a, um, a fork in the road in my career, mm. um, Because I was leaving the agency. This is when I was back at CMS, Colonel Man Stevenson, walking out and going to get a sandwich for lunch. And my then boss, who was chairman of the company, said, oh, I've got some good news, by the way, as I was leaving. He said, um, we've got a chance to pitch on the Adidas account. And I said I'd like to work on the pitch because my clients were a lot of automotive stuff and Unilever and so forth. But I thought it'd be a great thing to have on my list of accounts. I was an account director at the company by then. Yeah. So he said, Sure. So I worked on the pitch. We won the business. If I hadn't 
mentioned that to him. And if he hadn't said yes, I wouldn't be here today. My right, career would have right. taken a different direction. Yeah. Um, so it really was a fork in the road. And of course, at the time when these things happen, you don't know it. That's true. Um, but that, that could have gone a completely different way. But uh, so anyway, that that was where the, the connection to right. ISL came from. And what happened was, you know, I was pretty happy running my um, small communications consultancy. Like life was good and, and so forth. And out of the blue, I got a phone call asking me if I would be interested in this new company, which was had been formed. The whole thing was very cryptic. It was Jürgen who called me, Jürgen Lenz. Mm. The whole thing was very, very cryptic as to where the company was and quite what it did and so forth and so forth. <laughs> okay. But anyway, I knew Jürgen really well. So I said, sure, you know, um, and he was in London, I think. So we, we met and chatted and, you know, I wasn't terribly interested, to be frank, because you know, I was pretty happy doing what I was doing. Right. But, you know, it sounded quite interesting and he suggested if I was interested, I'd come over and... Uh, have a meeting with uh, with him and with Klaus Hempel, who's chief executive at that time. Yeah. And I said, sure. Uh, so I went over to Lutzer and we met in, in the offices there. And uh, a couple of things became really, really apparent to me. Uh, first of all, th this company had a, a big and bold vision. I was really impressed by that. Right. And secondly, and frankly, really importantly, it was extremely well capitalized. Right. So here I am sitting in London running my relatively small, uh, relatively undercapitalized business, to put it mildly. Uh, we were growing, but, you know, we, we were um, we, we cert certainly weren't flush with cash by any means. And um, I thought, boy, this is pretty impressive. Nice offices, um, obviously, you know, big vision, uh, lots of, uh, of um, willingness to, to invest for the future and so forth. So I, I thought, yeah, this, this this is something which is is probably worth worth doing. How, how old uh, were you at that time? Just to give you a rough idea here, what, uh, I was thirty three, I guess. In the early thirties, right? Okay, cool. Yeah, thirty three, something like that. So uh, I um, I said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to do it, and you know, two or three months went by before anything happened. Um, but then I got another call saying, hey, that you know, why don't you come over and, uh, and join us? Uh, which is what I did, and I moved to Lutzer in uh, January, sorry, July, right. July 83. Uh, uh, so, uh, no, I, was, I was its marketing director. Okay, I was just going to say, yeah, so your first role was that what, marketing director. Now, at that yeah. time, what that, that what does it really mean? I mean, what does what was ISL doing, um, you know, or, or starting to do? Uh, you mentioned earlier, of course, they were involved somewhat uh, with the Football World Cup in the in '82 in Spain, uh, but that was still with a partnership with Patrick Nelly, and then things maybe didn't work out there properly, and and uh, and Horst took certain rights in house, I guess, or, or took it then into a new company, right, which is is then what was ISL or uh, you know how ISL got started, right? Could you maybe talk a bit yeah, about that? Yeah, that? that's that's pr precisely correct. I mean, I was not involved in any of that, My but um, for whatever reason, and I don't know the reasons why, but there was a split between uh, uh, Dassler, Horst Dassler, and Patrick Nally. Right. That led to the formation of an interim company, which actually managed the uh, the World Cup in in Spain. Right. Okay. Uh, the whole things flung together. At the last minute, but with, with some success, and then out of that, ISL was formed. But I, I don't know any of the detail of that at all. Um, you know, my life at ISL started in July '83, right. uh, and you touched on an interesting point. 
Yeah, I was hired as marketing director, but in truth, there wasn't a whole lot of marketing. We'll right. come back to that in, in one minute. But what was driving the company at that time was um, the uh, uh, into what was called the Inter Soccer Four program, okay. which was a combination of the rights of FIFA and the rights of UEFA to form a, a four-year program that consisted of the World Cup, the European Championships, uh, plus um, the in the intervening years, the Cup Winners' Cup and, and, and so forth. You had FIFA and UEFA all in one program. Yeah, that's, wow. that's right. It's, it's, <laughs> Can you imagine that today? Right? It, was, it was pretty amazing at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. have done that. Wow. I had nothing to do with that. But so, yeah, I mean, to put that thing together showed... Uh, Showed certainly a high degree of vision. Yes. We also had the, the rights to the Asian Cup and the African Nations Cup and so forth. But the company was very much a football company at that time okay. and actually was, was really quite successful in, in, in the field. No right. question. Yeah. Now, that, that's interesting. So what was really when, you know, you looked at it, when you, you came in there in 83 um, and you spent almost a decade with them all the way to the you know, being deputy CEO at the end. Uh, you know, talk us through those those ten glorious years of ISL, which really it was, right? I mean, it was the agency um, of record, um, I would argue, in in the world of football, and later on, of course, with the IOC as well, and and IWF and many others, and and I've had you know others on the on the podcast who came much after you. Uh, they're more than in the '90s guys. There was Claude Rubal and and Dominic, and so I'd really love to hear the '80s stories here of you know th those those glory days of ISL. Please talk us through that a bit. Sure. I mean, I, I touched earlier on the fact there wasn't a whole lot of marketing. I mean, it, the reality was that, that ISL was primarily uh, a sales company. And uh, from my perspective, one of the things I felt um, very early on was that the clients actually knew more about our industry than, than we did, if okay. I'm brutally honest about it. Um, and that led to uh, the formation of our research department, in-house research department. And I, I'd, I'd like to think that that gave us a very significant competitive advantage. It may have been relatively rudimentary in terms mm. of the work we were doing, but I don't think anybody else was doing anything, quite frankly, at that time. Right. And, and it, as I say, it gave us competitive edge in the marketplace. And actually, out of that, what, what started as an in-house department that ultimately led to the formation of SRI, Mm. which was an independent research company led by Adrian Hitchin in London, yeah. uh, which still continued to service us at, at ISL, but also went out into the marketplace and offered services to, to others. Um, and certainly, I, I think that did help ISL quite a lot uh, in, in terms of establishing w what it was we were selling. I, I remember one of my colleagues once, uh, very early on, I said, what is it we're selling here? And he said, well... <laughs> It's kind of a sport thing. <laughs> okay. It's kind of a sport Which thing. Is, so the word yeah. sports marketing wasn't maybe even there yet, right? Not really, uh, yeah. to be frank. Okay. doesn't mean the company wasn't successful. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, it, but it wasn't particularly strong in, in that area, certainly in the early days. Uh, amazing. So, so what was sort of your, you know, first events, uh, the bigger ones, and you got involved in, um, and, and sort of, you know, what, what exactly? I mean, you, you mentioned that that program here, which included FIFA and UEFA. Um, so, '83. So, you would have what do we have here? '84, '85, '86. Um, so, there's more World Cups coming up, of course. And um, which side of the business were you? Were more involved in the were you involved in football side, or later on more in the in the in the Olympics program, or across all of it? 
Uh, well, I was involved across all of it at, at that time. Right. Uh, that's how we were structured. But that structure changed later on. Mm. Uh, and at that point, I then took over the running of the, the Olympic program. Okay. Um, and I should just talk a little bit about the background to that. Uh, the program was under development when I joined. Um, and this, this program was very much the vision of three people. Uh, one was Juan Antonio Samranch. The, the president, of course, of the IOC at that time. Yeah. And Dassler's interest, I'm sorry, Sam Ranch's interest in this was because you will recall that there had been a boycott of the Olympic Games uh, in 1980 in Moscow. Right. And the reason so many teams boycotted was because they were completely under government control. Governments provided all the money. So if the government said, you're not going, you're not going. Right. It's as simple as that. And Dasa's reason for, for wanting to, to produce the revenues that the top program, as it's called, provided, was actually uh, simple and strategic. Hmm. It was to ensure that NOCs could become independent of their governments. Um, and that, that was his motivation. And it was, it, this is very much his concept. Gary Height from Coca-Cola, um, who was global head of, of uh, sports marketing, for, for Coke. Mm. Gary had come up against a fundamental problem in the Olympic movement in that the rights to use the Olympic symbols and marks in each country rest with the National Olympic Committees. Right. So to put together a global program was extremely challenging. So, so on the one hand, you're Sam Ranch saying, you know what, we need to have independent financing for our National Olympic Committees. You know, Gary Height telling Sam Ranch, you need to find a way to overcome this, this problem which prevents a global company such as Coke or any other global company from becoming a global sponsor with ease. It's just, it's just too complicated to do it. The third party here, of course, was Horst Dassler, uh, and uh, Sam Ranch consulted with him and so forth, and he was the one who had the, the vision to say, okay, he'd invest the money necessary to make the thing happen. Hmm. Uh, I know that Patrick Nally would probably claim that he had a role here uh, <laughs> in, his, in his predecessor company. And it's true that Patrick, I think, had put together a marketing program of some sort right. related to the, the games in Moscow, which obviously ran into trouble through no fault of his own. But um, yes, he did do that. But I, I don't really think that's what drove this forward. It was, it was uh, Sam Ranch's recognition of the need for independent finance uh, those, that was the, the, the governing factor that caused this program to come about. It's interesting. And, and I heard this. Yeah, I had Michael Payne on it, which I'm sure you know well. Um, and maybe you guys even worked together, I guess, uh, over those years there. Um, and, and I think they, I've heard sim this similar story. But, uh, yeah, maybe one day we'll have uh, Petragoni as well, and he will have his side of the story there. Um, but so in, you know, so you are in there in 83, then we have 84 as the, the Olympics in L.A. Was that already uh, one of the first events you guys were involved in, or which was uh, the not, first not Olympics? That, that, that was completely separate and apart. Okay. And actually one of the, the myths is that uh, it was the L.A. Games that caused – uh, ISL to take on the Olympic program and the, the, the success of LA as a commercial entity was what drove the top program. That's completely incorrect. Okay. Uh, the top program was in discussion long before the LA Games. Okay. And um, as, a, as I've said, it was this, this desire of Samraj to create independent finance that, that uh, 
that move the thing forward. Right. So uh, that was, what was your first Olympics then? Which one was you involved in? And first what? Olympic Games for, for this program was Seoul in 88. All right, got it. Mm-hmm. And so you, so, please go ahead. Sure. So, I mean, I wasn't involved in the program in, in its early stages. Uh, this is very much driven by Jürgen Lentz. Right. And I must say he did a remarkable job to bring a project which is really very, very challenging because what ISL had to do, at least initially, was to bring together the rights of the IOC, which is relatively easy with that, that bit uh, because they were driving the program, the organizing committees, which actually never worked out properly, and all the National Olympic Committees. So you had ISL having to be, well, on the one hand, a, a sales agent, a marketing company, and on the other hand, to be a rights acquirer to make this program work. Right. And to get this thing off the ground in its first rendition, known as Top One, yeah. was a significant achievement, which, uh, as I say, Jürgen's tenacity is what, what drove that thing forward. Um, however, uh, organizationally, there, it wasn't perfect, to be frank, by, by any means. And that was because everybody was flying blind. They were just right. trying to invent this thing yeah. as it yeah. went along. Um, I, I took over the running of the program after the World Cup in Mexico in 86. Mm-hmm. And after that, we had a reorganization. And uh, actually, they wanted me to work on the uh, football programs, but I actually didn't really want to do that. So I said, look, I'll run the, the Olympic program. So I, I took that over. And yes, you're right. Michael, by that time, he joined ISL in 1985. And he was working as a manager with Jürgen. So after that time, Michael was then working for me for, I think, two or three years. Hmm. Awesome. It's a, it's a small fraternity here. Uh, um, now, and, I, you know, we can spend the whole podcast just on ISL because of the amazing company it was. Um, but we don't have that time. So, But I, I do want to touch, touch on a couple of other last things here. So you... Um, you know, before, and this is obviously before you left there, um, you know, you, you actually, interestingly enough, left just before a big World Cup, so um, in 94. Uh, what were your sort of highlights of, of the, your ISL days, um, you know, looking at all the Olympics and, and World Cups you were involved in? I mean, it's just, you know, I, I mean, I've been to many of them too, but not always as an executive, uh, you know, working there. I mean, you know, tell me, you know, one or two moments uh, where you just going, this is just the world's greatest job ever. Um, let me think. <laughs> I mean, certainly um, um, going to Seoul for the first Olympic Games I've been to in '88. That was uh, that was an interesting experience. Um, mm. you know, a lot of work went into that. So I took the program over just before Seoul, but a lot of work went into that, and obviously it was a significant success in a challenging marketplace. So certainly uh, that, that was that was an important highlight. No, no question. Yeah. So then. So and again, before we move on to to your cart days, uh, love to just hear your thoughts on what went wrong with ISL because unfortunately, ISA is no longer around. Um, if I recall correctly, it kind of went bankrupt in the early two thousands. Uh, can't remember exactly date, but you know, obviously you were not there anymore. Um, but I'm assuming you were always you know watching still and, and keeping an eye on them. So what what do you think what happened at the end? Well, I left in 1994. Um, tragically, very sadly, uh, somewhat before that, um, let me think, by the time of the, the World Cup in, in Rome, in, in, in Italy, uh, Horst Dassler died right. uh, of cancer, which was a, a huge loss. Um, that 
cause the ownership of the company to pass to the Dassler family. Uh, the horse had four sisters. And um, one of the sisters' husbands, uh, Chris Malms, uh, became directly involved in the running of the business. And um, Jürgen, Lentz, and Klaus Hempel decided to leave. And actually, the, the original thinking that I and two other people were going to leave with Jürgen and Klaus, but actually I decided not to in the end because I didn't particularly uh, uh, like the, the structure they were proposing for a new company. Uh, so I decided to stay. Right. Um, but what became very apparent was that Chris Marms, I'm going to be quite frank here, was just not up to the job. Right. Um, and more to the point, he had some people around him who uh, I think gave him really bad advice. Um, he came into the company with a deep suspicion deep suspicion of anybody who worked there. We had to be bad people, basically. Oh, and there had been some sort of tension over the years between Horse and his sisters. That's not my business. I don't want to get into that. Yeah. But I think that kind of spilled over that, you know, we were by extension Horse people, and therefore we must be suspect oh, in right. some way. Okay, okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't a very happy environment. And, yeah. and actually, on, on the personal side, I was actually, by, by that time, um, uh, I, I love living in Lucerne, and my wife loved living there as well. Um, but as much as we liked that, you know, we then had two young children, and we felt that in some ways it might be better if they grew up in an English-speaking environment because, uh, uh, you know, we thought we might lose touch with them otherwise if they, they landed up just mm. speaking German fluently and so forth. So we, we kind of tempted with the idea of a move uh, anyway um, I wasn't particularly happy with the way things were going at ISL uh, didn't have a lot of confidence in, in its future right. quite frankly and, uh, yeah. and um, so I started looking around and what I haven't mentioned is that I had a significant personal involvement in motor racing uh, throughout most of my life uh, I raced in the UK um, before moving to Switzerland and then subsequently raced uh, in Switzerland in the Swiss National Championships, which, okay. by the way, take place in every other country apart from Switzerland. Um, okay. But um, so I, I, knew, I knew the racing world pretty well. Right. And I knew that my predecessor at uh, IndyCars, it's called, or CART, uh, was actually leaving. So I um, decided I would contact these, these folks mm. and uh, got hold of a few phone numbers and basically was getting brushed off. Um, oh, no, 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 trains left the station, whatever, uh, <laughs> right. in terms of like, CEO. So I don't know how I did this, but somehow I got all their addresses. Right. Uh, and I, when I say they, I mean the team owners, because the team owners own the company. Right. So I got all their addresses, and I wrote them all. And um, then I got a phone call from a guy called Carl Hogan, who's one of the team owners, and he invited me to come over for an interview. Uh, went over and... It was in Chicago, and I met met with these guys. There's four or five people there, right. and I have to tell you, I was incredibly unimpressed, just unbelievably unimpressed. They really just seemed such a strange group of inward-looking and introverted people. Right. Um, so anyway, I left there, had the interview, left there, and called my wife. I think I said, "No, I don't think so," but within a couple of hours. They called me back 
and asked me to come back again, which I, I did, had no reason not to. Um, my flight wasn't until late that night. So I went back and met with them again. And they kind of offered, they didn't offer me the job because that was a decision by the, the, the team board. Right. But they pretty well offered me the job. And uh, I guess vanity took over there. And uh, <laughs> uh, I said, hey, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give it a second look. Right. So, and the job um, was as a CEO or which CEO, what was the, right, as a CEO, yeah, right? Okay. So, um, yeah, a bit of hubris came into play there. I thought, well, let's see if I can make something of this, this company. And I did want to move. I really wanted to leave ISL. Didn't want to leave Switzerland, but I really wanted to leave ISL. Right. So, so, so um, that, all, was it, that all worked out in, in that sense. So where was the first uh, um, city you, you moved to in the U.S. then? I was here, Detroit. In Detroit already, okay. Yeah, the, okay. Company, the company's now in Indianapolis, but at the time it was, it was in Detroit. Right. And um, so I, I met with the whole board, and uh, it was a competitive process. There was actually one other candidate who actually became a good friend of mine, Nick, Nick Craw. Um, and as it was competitive, therefore, I decided I would, you know, pitch for it properly. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I got the job. Mm. Um, my due diligence was really very, very poor. Uh, to be frank, uh, what I didn't know was that this company was in the middle of a deep and long-standing dispute with the family that owned the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Right. Now, that is, we, we just call it the Speedway, so I'll probably just call it the Speedway right. as, as I talk. Um, the, the Speedway was absolutely the crown jewel in the sport. There's, there's no question about that, and, and, it, and it, it remains so to this day. Yeah. But whereas all of the contracts with all of the other races in the series, they were negotiated by IndyCar or CART, right. um, the, the Speedway stood alone. It was a di different deal, different structure. Now, there was a deep, long-standing dispute between our company and the Speedway. And the Speedway had you know, its leadership under Tony George, who was one of the family members who, who owned the track, Their view was that we were a bunch of bandits, basically, um, who somehow were driving the sport into the ground and ripping off drivers and so forth and so forth. And this is all incredibly ill-informed, to, right. to be frank, uh, just incredibly ill-informed. But there was a feeling that somehow that Karts had stolen the championship from the Speedway and from the United States Auto Club. And... and Uh, certainly they took it over because it was really, really badly run, to be frank. Mm. They take it over some years before I got involved. And um, so there's this deep resentment. And Tony George really wanted to form his own series. He had, prior to my arrival, tried to, to buy IndyCar. Okay. Uh, he made a derisory offer. And the, the, the team owners just laughed him out of the room, basically. Right. Um, And uh, this caused great personal resentment, it's my understanding. And um, that's when he first thought he'd form his own series. So when I arrived, literally on my first day in the office, um, Tony George announces that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is going to launch its own race series mm. um, against ours. And this was going to take over and run the sport in the future. Right, right. It was the, the problem with that vision was it was based on a couple of false perceptions. 
it was based on a false perception that the other racetracks in the series, of which there were 15 or 16, I guess, yeah, right. probably 15 or 16, that they all hated us and loved the Speedway. Right. Truth of the matter was, they were kind of okay with us. There were a couple of relationships that were really, really bad, but overall, they, they were pretty good relationships. Right. So they, they're pretty well okay with us. I wouldn't say they hated the Speedway, but they were very suspicious of the Speedway. Right. They, they saw that they would just become little satellites um, around, floating around the Indianapolis 500. Right. And they wouldn't be part of a, a bigger, something, a, a bigger hole. Mm. So yeah, I can see that. One of the first things we did when I, when I joined was we entered into long-term contracts uh, with, with our with our racetracks, mm-hmm. and very frankly, this was a willing buyer and a willing seller. They they wanted to do these deals, right. so we announced those in the middle of I think it was twenty fourteen. Uh, sorry, um, um, ninety four. Uh, we, we we announced these races that really was a, a terrific step in, in in stopping what was starting to develop with the speedway. Didn't stop it completely, but it certainly slowed it down. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, we quite successfully grew the series for a number of years, but nonetheless, um, Tony still wanted to try and have his own uh, series. Uh, there were several attempts to negotiate uh, a settlement. Um, on one occasion, I thought we had a settlement, uh, but then that fell apart. To my surprise, um, that was quite early on. And so, so for a while, there were two, right? If, uh, if I sort of vaguely remember that, is it correct? There were two series yeah, that, in the US, happened. right? In, in, in the end, we were unable to stop this other series being correct. formed. It was formed. Uh, and the only reason they managed to form it was by actually putting restrictions on our ability to participate in the Indy 500. Oh, right. Uh, okay. Which, which they, they did, which obviously undermined us somewhat. Yeah. So that was the um, carrot they dangled out, I guess, saying, hey, if you want to race here, you got to be part of us, right? Correct. But mm. despite that, uh, you know, our teams took the independent decision. I stress they all took that decision independent of each other not to break away, uh, to stay with us. We lost a couple of teams. that uh, They went over to the other series. But they stayed with us because they saw opportunity with us. Mm. And, and we, we survived. And, in fact, you know, the... This popular wisdom was, without the Indy 500, we'd have no teams, no drivers, no racetracks. Well, actually, we had 28 teams, willing, lots and lots of willing drivers wanting these drives. Uh, and we were actually in reasonably good shape. We had good sponsors. Uh, we, we, had, we increased our sponsors substantially. Yeah. We bought on FedEx, our title sponsor. Um, it, was, it was okay. But having said that, it split the fan base. Yeah. And that that was a that huge was, problem. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and, and just some of the numbers, at least I read. Um, you know, uh, when you started, it was maybe twenty, twenty-five million dollar sort of revenue, and you grew it to seventy-five million and probably beyond. Um, you know, which is significant at that time. Um, but there was also a, you took the company public uh, in 1998, I believe. So you know, talk a bit about this uh, because on the back of it, then obviously comes this sort of my question on F1 there later. Um, so what? Was was the you know process there and uh, you know how did you were guiding this as the ceo one of the challenges that the race teams faced was that if you wanted to leave racing there was virtually no value in your team mm-hmm. now we, we were running a franchise system right. uh, so the teams paid us a certain amount of money to buy a franchise and then they received from us in return all sorts of benefits prize money Uh, certain other financial distributions. Right. 
uh, a lot of, all the technical services and so forth and so forth, the franchise actually was, was really good value. Hmm. Um, but the only thing they would get from us when, when they left the sport, if they wanted to leave, was uh, basically the value of the franchise to get the money back. Right. Um, and the, the, the feeling in the teams was, could we not find a, a better way that they would get more value out of, out of the race teams? And we did look at a number of options of revising the franchise system, but actually one of our team owners, it was not my idea, one of our team owners, actually who sadly died uh, this week, Pat Patrick, called me and said, look, you know, one thing we could consider here is releasing some of the value that's locked up in this company um, by taking it public. Hmm. And actually at first I thought, yeah, it's an interesting idea, but it's going to be very difficult to get the 24 franchise holders to agree to this. Um, However, uh, we decided to pursue it. And um, there was a lot of flip-flopping from the teams as we developed this whole thing. Um, And actually, at one stage, I thought probably we would not move ahead. Um, But then we had a critical meeting actually here in Detroit, Dearborn. And... um, to my surprise and delight, actually, they, they did vote for it. Um, and what we did, we, we took on some debt um, so that we could, short-term debt, so we, we could guarantee that their, their revenues that they were getting from us in terms of prize monies and so forth would not decline. Mm-hmm. Um, but, then the other, but then those monies then reverted, effectively becoming profit. Well, so, so what was the uh, benefit to the team owners? I mean, the company's public, but that still doesn't give any or, – or did the team owners have equity in the company or they, how did that structure work? The company. They exactly. had equity. They all, became, they all became shareholders in the company. Got it. Okay. Uh, they had equity in the company. They were locked in uh, for the first uh, – I, I think it was 18 months lock-in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after that, they were able to, to sell their shares if they wanted to. Some sold some of their shares. Some sold none of their shares. Um, we did a secondary offering to enable the teams to uh, to sell their shares, to some of the shares. Um, so that, that's where the value was for them. All of a sudden, they had an asset which they knew had a value. Um, yeah. So they could leave racing and if they wanted to either sell or keep their stock at, at that time. Um, so, yeah, so we uh, we did an IPO. Um, and it was, it was going to be an interesting process because um, – you know, we're an unusual company to go public, and particularly we're going public on the New York Stock Exchange. Right. Um, so it's unusual for, for a sports property to, to do this. Yes. And what what we did, in because I did the roadshow, of course, we, we started all the presentations by saying that actually we are a traditional industrial company. This was the time of the internet boom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, so they were getting approaches every day all the portfolio managers and so forth getting approaches every day from internet companies so someone who comes in and says that actually we're um, a real company we're a traditional (laughs) industrial company it was kind of a surprise and i explained that what we do here is we are a manufacturer of motor races right we manufacture races and we sell them Hmm. which is the essence of the business actually it really is sell them to race promoters who in turn then, then sell them to the consumer. Right. And all of a sudden, when, when it was clear that, you know, we weren't just some loosey-goosey sports thing, but actually we had a really good business model. Uh, we were profitable. Right. We had, um, by this stage, we were starting to expand internationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, international races were 
very much more attractive to us financially. Right. Uh, so, you know, there's a, a lot of revenues, new revenue coming into the business. Hmm. We built a good sponsorship program. So, again, that was new revenues coming in. Uh, it was a pretty attractive offer to, 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 to the streets, to Wall Street. And, in fact, the, uh, the IPO flew out the door. And it uh, went, went very well. What was the, the valuation at the sort of peak or at, at when you started? Uh, at one stage, it got up to uh, about three quarters of a billion, which is hard to believe for such a small company, probably a little overvalued. But yeah, it, was, it, was, it went well. Three quarters of a billion. Okay, so $750 million. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a nice uh, valuation. Absolutely. Um, now, you know, again, this is another one we could spend a whole hour on, but uh, uh, but I do have a couple more questions. And that is, so what was your relationship with Bernie? You know, I mean, F1 was still the the giant in the room, some sense, right, at least globally, uh, especially when you were, I guess, were going internationally, you were starting to kind of uh, bump against them. Um, so how are you guys uh, getting along there? Well, the first thing is that the two businesses were actually quite similar in many ways. It's Correct. just a Formula One had a lot more zeros than, than we had right. on, on, on their balance sheet. You know, I, I knew Bernie, and certainly he was a little suspicious of us, I think, because, yes, you, you're right, we were starting to expand internationally. Um, we, uh, we had an agreement with the FIA that we would only race internationally with the exception of one race in Australia mm. if we raced on ovals. And I think when, when that agreement was achieved, it was before I arrived, the thinking was, well, there are no ovals, that's not a problem. <laughs> uh, exactly. But then actually the, 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 that oval started to appear. Honda built a magnificent oval in, in Japan and very much wanted okay. us to race there. Right. Um, there was an oval built in Brazil and subsequently the, the Lausitz ring in Germany and so forth. So all of a sudden there, there were these oval tracks mm. suddenly appearing and we were entirely within our rights to go and race on them. We already raced in Australia on a road course, but that was kind of grandfathered in, into the deal. Right. So, yeah, I think Bernie was always a little bit wary um, about us, obviously very much smaller company than him, than, than his, his organization. Um, I don't think he ever saw us as a, a massive competitive threat. We certainly weren't. To, to be very clear about it, but we were we were certainly a potential irritant, I, I guess. Mm. But you know, I knew Bernie quite well in that time. Um, saw him from time to time. Motor racing is a relatively small community, so you all see each other quite a lot. But then you tried to buy. At least what I read somewhere is that there was some attempt to potentially buy F1. Um, so is that true, or or what is it's, the story there? It was it was frankly more of a fishing trip than anything else. Um, <laughs> We, we had too much cash on the balance sheet. Uh, not, not I stress, not the kind of money you need to buy Formula One, but money was relatively cheap at that time. Not as cheap as it is today, but money was relatively cheap. Hmm. But we, we had a lot of cash floating around, relatively speaking. Um, and, you know, one thing investors don't like is, is un, unused cash. Right. So you've either, either got to pay it out as a dividend, which we weren't planning on doing, or, or find better ways to invest it. So obviously, one of the options to buy are the race series, and he thought, well, let, let's have a look at that. Um, Bernie was happy to have the discussion. I don't think he was serious about it. Uh, <laughs> I think he was more, more and more interested to see what we, what we were going to say. Um, so we did have a couple of meetings on that. We could never really get any numbers out of him, which didn't come as a big surprise. Um, and so it, it didn't really move, move forward from there. But yeah, sure, we, we had the, the ambition, and... Uh, 
if, if they'd been a willing seller, we probably would, would have been a willing buyer. Yeah, interesting. Now, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I guess I'm sure there's lots more interesting stories to this here. Um, but you left CART, you know, around 2000. And then again, a couple of years later, unfortunately, you know, CART also uh, dissolved, right? Uh, just quickly talk us through that, um, not just the leaving part, but also what happened to CART, um, you know, at the end. Well, I mean, it, it was tough, frankly, not, not having the Speedway in the series. There's, there's no, no question about that. Mm. And, um, you know, it was, it was very difficult because it, the, there was a big split in the fan base and so forth, and TV ratings for, for both series were, were weak. Um, I can't really talk in, in great detail about what, what happened after I left, but they went through a succession of chief executives, I think, you know, three, I think, maybe more. Mm. Yeah, certainly three. And um, when I left, there was you know, a fair amount of cash on the balance sheet. Um, by the time that uh, they closed, all that money had vanished. Um, I don't know where or how, I'm not, not implying anything in that, but that money sure. was spent. Um, and um, in the end, uh, Tony George and the International Motor Speedway um, came out king. They, they acquired, I think they acquired the assets that were left over. And um, uh, there's now one series. Uh, the good news in this story is that actually in, in recent times, last year, uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the series was bought by Roger Penske. Mm. And Roger, of course, is one of our main team owners, major team owner at IndyCar and Cars. And um, now he lands up owning the Speedway and owning the series. And... I have to say, I think the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is in very good hands. Uh, it'll, it can only get better yeah. um, under Roger's leadership. And I think that there's some very good times ahead for the series. Yeah, so it's sort of come full circle here. That's interesting. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, very cool. So now we're in 2020 here. Um, you've had a successful career with ISL and CART. And all of a sudden, you're jumping out here, or at least how it looks on, on, a, on a basic LinkedIn profile, and you start your own company, the Craig Company. What was the motivation? And, and then, of course, we'll go into what you've been doing the last 20 years here. Well, I was certainly, um, you know, I'd worked in a very big organization. I worked in uh, medium-sized companies and so forth, and... Uh, uh, you know, I've been in the motor racing business for some years, and I, I really just wanted to do something dif different after after IndyCar. And so I thought I would uh, uh, become a consultant, and, and that's what I did. It was really, really as simple as that. As I said at the beginning, my, my career has never been that planned uh, at all. <laughs> right. And, and when you say consultant, is it you are mostly working on your own, or you have a you know team of people? Or what what was the sort of what's been the structure of the company the last twenty years? I actually, what I do is I hire people in. I think this is a model that many many people use now. Uh, I hire people on a project by project basis. If, right. if I need people, I, I bring them in. Uh, yeah. I have to say, as time's gone by, I do that less often now. I, I tend to just do these things myself. But where where I need to, I'll, I'll hire people. On a project basis, I mean, it's a curious situation because you can actually land up with people working for you 
one minute and then being competitive with you at a later stage, which is yeah, quite yeah. That happens quite often, yeah. yeah. And that is sort of where it, it's interesting. When I started Total Sports, Total Sports um, you know, my idea always was I want to be the next IMG you know, or whatever, Asian version of it. Um, so when you started the Crate Company, this was not that was not your vision. You didn't want to be the not next ISL. Um, you just wanted to be that sort of it's called a boutique agency consultant. Is that would that be the correct description? That'd be correct. I just had with with high margins. Yeah, with high margins, exactly. I like that. Um, so let's talk about the the twenty years here as a consultant. You know, what, you know, please share your learnings. Uh, you know, it's a it's you know two decades, um, and I know you kind of went back into your Olympic the Olympic side of it. Um, uh, you know, which were obviously you know from your ISL days. But uh, you know, when you first started, what was was it motorsports you were doing, or you know, where did you pick up from basically? No, it's, it's very straightforward. And I've been asked by a number of people, you know, how do you become a consultant? Mm. And uh, it's a simple answer to that. You need to have a client. It's, it's yep. as simple as that. You, you're not a consultant until you have a client. Right. And what I did, uh, as, as small as this may sound, but I, I knew the then president of the International Bobsleigh Federation, Bob Story, Canadian. Mm-hmm. I knew Bob quite well from prior prior life. I forget where, actually. But uh, anyway, I called him up and said, listen, I'll give you some help with your federation, mm-hmm. which was small and so forth. And uh, by doing that, then straight away you have that piece of plastic around your neck, you have a credential and so yeah. forth, and, and you're real. You're no longer an aspirant consultant. You actually are a consultant. Correct. And actually what that led to is that actually through an introduction from, from Bob's story, uh, getting a relatively small and late assignment with Vancouver 2010 on their Olympic bid. But what I saw in that, although it was a very successful bid, was that um, there's probably ways this could be a little more structured, mm-hmm. the approach to be taken. And that in turn, working on Vancouver, that led me to get the assignment at uh, London 2012. Uh, and that was obviously a very successful assignment. I was... Um, and that is the bidding part, right? You're involved. It's That's not correct. The oh, yeah. event, I, I don't right? do operations. So, correct. I, I run to the door after they've won. Sorry? Yeah, okay. So I, I, after I they won, the you off. <laughs> right, okay. Now, again, this yeah. is such the, – the Olympic bidding process, obviously, we all, you know, anyone in the industry knows is, is a very unique um, process. You know, I mean, the only one who comes close to it would be the World Cup, I guess. Um, how it's bid for and, and, you know, all the money obviously involved, et cetera. So, you know, let's go in there a little bit. Um, you know, and you mentioned Vancouver, London, I saw Sochi and Paris, of course, which is, you know, an, an up and coming one here. Um, what is it really what you do? Is it you just help them with the bid documents or you run around and start, you know, talking to IOC members or, you know, what is the role here? Well, first of all, I should just say that the, the whole process has now changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so Paris is probably the, the last bid that was on, on this sort of older approach. Um, but basically, um, my, my role was to, to bring structure and, and some discipline to, to the process of winning votes. Right. Um, the What I felt looking at the way... I'm not just, just talking, well, I'm not talking about Vancouver. I'm talking about Vancouver's competitors and, and other bids that I've seen is that, you know, the environment of an Olympic bid is essentially chaotic. 
Uh, and that's not meant negatively at all. But, you know, it's it's a business where people just tumble into meetings and they hope to see IOC members and, and so forth. And it really was, was very, very unstructured mm-hmm. in, in its approach. And, you know, I thought Vancouver was reasonably well-structured, but some of its competitors just weren't. Right. And um, it seemed to me that, you know, if you could bring more order uh, and more process, um, the one thing I've always made really clear in every bid I worked on is that consultants absolutely do not win bids. There's lots of consultants out there who will tell you they, they do win bids, but they don't. Right. Clients win bids. Bidding sure. cities win bids. And the, the role of consultants, in particular in my case, in international relations, is to make the bid team as good as they could be in terms of how they communicate with IOC members and the people ultimately who will, will, will place place the votes. Right. Um, you know, if you constantly have changes in the people who are talking with the membership, lobbying, I guess, mm. uh, most people call it, uh, that doesn't lead to a serious and cohesive narrative. I mean, every conversation with an IOC member should be documented. Every conversation should lead to the next conversation, which might be by a different person in your small and tight team, but they know where that conversation left off last time. Hmm. So really the, the role is to bring substantial discipline and structure and organization um, to something which, with the best will in the world, I, I felt was was not well structured. Right. So it wasn't just having nice dinners and drinks with everyone. Um, now, not at all. No, the, actually, there's not there's not a whole lot of opportunity for that, and that's got less as time's gone by. To of be course, yeah. I mean, you know, it's been tighter and tighter. But uh, you know, before we sort of you know go and move into other areas here, is you know, you know, and you you would know this more than anyone. Uh, I mean, there's lots of controversial stories about you know vote rigging and buying of votes and and all that fun stuff. Uh, what have you seen uh, of what you can talk about? Well, I, I can only tell you that, that you know, I, I, I don't know about these things. Um, I'm, I'm sure it has happened. I've certainly not, not been involved in any bid where I have any knowledge of that happening, uh, and nor would I have worked on those bids. But, um, but yeah, it, it does seem that there have been some issues, uh, and uh, that's all I can really say. Hmm. Well, fair enough. I mean, like I said, you know, it, it's it's obviously documented in many ways, and and uh, and as usual, there's no I, in my mind there is no doubt that some of that unfortunately does happen. Uh, um, you know, I'm not suggesting it was in, in under your leaderships here. So uh, let's let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, you know London or or Sochi. Pick pick one uh, you 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 like the most where um, you can talk us through really the the step-by-step process here um, of what it means to win it, you know, just the short version of what what is it really what goes through, you know, a city decides or, or a country decides we're going to bid for this thing. They put a team together, they bring in consultants and, and, and experts. Um, and then how, how does it all get going? I mean, you know, talk, talk a bit about it more in detail. Well, I think probably the, the bid I, I enjoy most was working on, on the London bid. Mm-hmm. So we can perhaps focus on that. Uh, I think also it's, it's important just to understand the, the voting system, which is fundamental to how, how you win. Right. Because you, how the voting system works is that if we take the case of London, there were you know five cities bidding. Right. And in each round of voting, 
until one city achieves 50 percent plus one vote mm. uh, one seat is eliminated correct so and then they vote again and this is not something which happens a long you know much later it happens straight yeah. away yeah, yeah. Vote, and then another vote and so correct. forth there's no consultation between between those votes yeah but of course every time a city goes out those votes become available right. to another one of those cities and it's, it's not like um, uh, there's any opportunity to think for too much about how how this is going to happen mm. but so the, the key here is that um, you're not going to win with your friends you, you, you have to have second best friends and even third best friends to, to win. Mm. You, you never, you're unlikely, put it that way, to have a core constituency that is sufficiently large that you can win outright. And that's right. the case, you know, right. the three rounds of voting, whatever, right. and so forth. Right. So when it comes to, you know, so you go through three or four rounds of voting, when it comes to final choice between one city or another, um, that decision potentially is actually quite superficial. Uh, no one's sitting there saying, gee, let me think, where's their main stadium and what's the capacity and how, how long are those travel distances? It, it isn't like that. Right. But that's, that's not at the stage how people are, are going to vote. And they're going to vote for, for the people who've actually left them feeling best about them. Right. So you know, you're confronted with a situation where the city you want to win is out, then the city you thought might come second, because most people, you, you see, you're second choice, because most people have a second choice, right. that size. Right. And now you've got to make a decision between two or three cities that actually, you didn't really want any of them to win. Well, guess what? You're going to vote for the one that's always treated you with respect, that's been professional, that's talked to you properly, mm. um, that's communicated well with you, that's presented some pretty good reasons as to why their, their city is, is a place that would benefit the Olympic Games. And then you're going to press the button. And you're right. going to press the button for the city, which, which although you didn't want them to win, they're now your best option. Right. And that, that's absolutely key to, to how this, this process works. Mm, interesting. You know, I've certainly seen cities that just think they've got to gather their fans, their supporters, and cling on to those. Well, you're not going to win on that basis. You, you just won't. Right. So that's fundamental to the process. So, you know, when you, you go out and start talking with IOC members, you've got to talk to them on their terms, not on your terms. These mm. are busy people. Yeah. They don't want to be harassed by uh, anxious yeah. business. Five, five cities. <laughs> right. Yeah, they absolutely don't. So you, you talk to them on, on, on their terms and in their language and you communicate with them points that are relevant and meet their needs yeah and that's that's really the the essence of it yeah. of course there are many many other components as you know public relations as the, the presentations and and so forth it's all, all of that stuff right. um but fun fundamentally you've got you've got to have a, a narrative with people that resonates with them and will cause them to vote for you and press your button rather than someone else's where they've got to make pretty well that decision within a few seconds, mm. maybe a minute. 
to make that decision. Right, right. So yeah, they have to have the emotional connection there. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And so that is pretty much your, let's say, part of your uh, your role over the last 20 years. That was exactly that, going in there and building those relationships on behalf of your clients or on behalf of your cities. Well, uh, building building the structures that would help help the clients communicate effectively. As I said before, um, you know, lobbyists don't win bids. I don't really like being described as a lobbyist. I don't regard myself as one. Um, right. It's it's bid leadership and a right. bid team wins. Got it. The, these are the, the ISC members are going to look at that team and say, do we trust this group of people to put on a great Olympic Games? Yeah. And that, that's the key. And that, that's what certainly happened with with Vancouver, London, Sochi, with, with Paris. Do, do you trust these people? Will they will they make us proud uh, by hosting the games? And uh, if you can achieve that, you've achieved a lot. But as I say, no one votes for me. No, no, fair enough. Were, were you anywhere on, on a losing team as well? Uh, oh, yeah. Were, yeah, I, which I, one were I, you maybe mentioned? No, no question. I mean, I worked on the Annecy bid, which was an absolute disaster. And again, that was complete hubris on my point. On my part, I was approached six months before the vote um, to get involved there when actually basically the, the whole bid team kind of fell apart and they brought in a whole group of new people. And I probably should have said no. Um, but I said, yeah, okay, let's see if we can do something here, which probably was incredibly naive on my part. And, uh, yeah, we, we did do something. We, we helped them to, to get the whole thing restructured, reorganized, And I think that the team they had did a, did a good job, but it was way too late. Hmm. Uh, it was a disaster. We came out last with a pitiful number of votes. So, yeah, that wasn't a great success. On the other hand, one losing bid, I, I, despite the fact they lost, I do regard as a great success was Almaty 2022, right. where um, they were written off as a complete no-hoper um, and actually almost won, almost won. So that, that was a... a Disappointing to lose, but gratifying to take them to a point where, just despite the popular wisdom being that, oh no, no one's going to vote for Almaty, we, we did pretty well, very well actually. Interesting. Now, I want to talk a bit about some of the other things you've been involved in. You know, I know you work with several international federations, um, golf, wrestling, again, linked to their, I guess, Olympic uh, programs uh, or, or, you know, st 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 staying in the Olympics with wrestling, I believe, or, you know, in, with golf getting in it um, and a bit of the European Games here as well. Uh, you know, so that is how would you describe your roles there? Um, you know, what is it, sure. the difference what you're doing there with, with, uh, with the federations? Uh, my role on the golf campaign was relatively minor. Um, I was brought in at the end of the campaign uh, because what became very clear was that, um, that the Golf Federation had not done a particularly good job. I think they were frankly ill-advised uh, at one stage. But they hadn't done a particularly good job of uh, connecting with the membership. Hmm. So I, I came in, and my, I say my role was relatively small, um, in, in helping them to put together a program so they could reach out to, to the membership in the final months of the campaign. Yeah, because the bidding, the in a sense, is a similar process, right? If you want to be a sport in the Olympics, it's almost like the same way winning the winning a bid, right? Um, it, it, it is, would, it is, right. on a smaller scale. Yeah. The, the wrestling campaign, however, was, uh, was, more, was a very, very interesting project because, as you know, uh, most people know, uh, the Wrestling Federation succeeded in getting itself thrown out of the Olympic Games. Right. 
uh, much to their horror. Actually, in my view, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to the Federation. Right. Because there were some, I'm going to call it organizational challenges in the way it was run. Mm. And um, what happened was completely new leadership came in uh, under a new president, Nadal Lalovic, who's now gone on to be an IOC member and now sits on the IOC executive board. And we put together the campaign to, I mean, he was a complete outsider. He'd not been involved in in the Olympic world he, at all. He was a uh, he was involved in wrestling, but only in quite a minor way. Hmm. Lanzap was president of the federation, uh, following the departure of his predecessor, and uh, ran a very successful campaign. Uh, wrestling got back on the Olympic program. I think uh, we had a, an inherent advantage, and in that many people felt this is a sport that's so fundamental and traditional in the Olympic Games that not to have wrestling would be hard to believe. Mm. Uh, and, and we managed to get them re reinstated. Um, but that was a great campaign, and uh, uh, a lot of the credit for that does indeed go to uh, President Lalovic, who uh, is very personable, uh, very hardworking, and uh, got the job done, basically. Here's a question for you, which sort of pops in my mind listening to you to this. Um, and being involved, you know, from ISL days with, with the Olympics, so you've been around this, this, uh, this uh, the Olympics for a long, long time. Where do you see the, uh, the Olympics heading in terms of the mix of let's call it legacy sports? And wrestling would be right up there, um, you know, in archery and, and things like this. Too, of course, the new sports they're bringing in now, you know, and, and as you, again, there've been some controversial recently. Of um, uh, let me try to think one of, of one. Uh, um, Well, some people didn't uh, thought it was a bit uh, interesting. Uh, well, a lot of a lot of people were, were somewhat doubtful about uh, breaking or break. Oh, that's right. Yeah, break dance. Exactly. I was I was can't think of yeah. exactly. So I mean, again, that that's you know, very on the, it's called it really on the extreme other end of it, right? Uh, of sports, right? And there are many other sports like squash who've been trying to get in there for years, and 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 you could call it a legitimate, you know, uh, proper professional sport around the world. So where do you see? The IOC is heading there from your point of view, right? And, and what you've been watching and seeing for you know your last you know, almost 40 years here. Well, I think something has to change. Um, you know, the, the program which consists of in the summer games 28 sports, as you rightly say, is most of those sports have been there a very very long time. Yeah. Uh, of course, the challenge is this: that many of those sports would find it hard to survive. Um, or certainly find it hard to flourish without the Olympics. If you Olympics, right? the Olympic Games uh, and the revenues that that provides to them as sports. Right. So this is not an easy issue for the IOC uh, at all. Um, you know, I, th I think there's, a, there's a, a duty they have or see they have on their side not to damage, I guess, mm. the sports they have. O on the other hand, uh, as you rightly point out, The world of sport is changing. There are many new and exciting and interesting sports out there. And the IOC remains concerned. They've made very clear publicly that um, they're not attracting youth. And they've yep, uh, taken many steps to try and change that. Um, but the, the fact is that um, if you want to appeal to youth, you need to have sports on the program that youth find appealing. Yeah. to state the obvious. And um, I, I think that at some point, the IOC is certainly going to have to look at um, uh, changes 
which may not involve the elimination of sports, but certainly could involve, and this is just speculation on my part, a reduction in the number of disciplines that some of these traditional sports have, right. thus reducing the numbers of athletes, thus creating opportunities for other sports to enter. Right. And certainly, from, from my understanding, the IOC is adamant that the total number of athletes should not increase over the 10,500 that they have at the moment. Right. And I think that, that that's probably absolutely right because um, that's a huge commitment for the organising committees. Um, so other ways will have to be found. But I, you're, you're entirely correct. There, at some stage, the sports programme will have to open up to, to new and exciting innovative sports. And that leads to the obvious question. Where do you see esports? Um, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, I, I don't have a lot of knowledge of esports, but, but I, I do not think it is a given that esports have to be part of the Olympic Games. Um, you know, some people seem to think it should be, mm. nor do I think it's a given that um, international federations should necessarily feel that where they have an esports program, that, that somehow that should also be included in the Olympic Games. Mm. Uh, I, I, I see esports as obviously, uh, first of all, is it a sport? I think in some cases, yes, it is. Uh, in a lot of cases, actually, it's just a pastime. But yes, I think there are certain parts of the esport community that where it is is a sport, right. um, and I think there is an opportunity to to grow that. Um, whether that grows with the Olympic Games or outside of it, I don't know, quite mm -hmm. quite frankly. Um, but it's not going to go away. That, that's and and you you mentioned earlier, you know, the Olympics needs the use. Um, that's where the use is, right? I mean, Generation Z. That is, it's all about it, gaming and esports now. Um, and so, I think the Olympic would be well. Uh, uh, it, it would be smart for them to to take a real close look how to incorporate it. And, and I'm not saying it's easy uh, because of obviously there's violence in certain games and, and other things which we all know about. Uh, maybe they need to hire you as a consultant to help them structure this a bit better there. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, that I think that's it in itself is an interesting conversation we could probably spend quite a bit of time on now. But uh, I have another can one. I, of course, one please, of, of yeah, go sports at, at its very, very best. Um, as you know, one of my clients was the World Endurance Championship, mm -hmm. uh, and the, their premier race, of course, is the Le Mans 24-hour race. Yes. Uh, and this year, that race could not be held in its tradi traditional summer date. Yep. So they organized a global esports version right. of the Le Mans 24-hour race yep. with teams that consisted of two professional race car drivers plus two gamers. You know, mm -hmm. people who uh, yeah. race esports uh, yep. and and they ran this event for 24 hours mm. and there were a couple of technical problems along the way but this was just a fantastic success and a remarkable achievement and you know motorsport is something which really really lends itself to esports it really does so yeah. you know I, I may appear a little cynical about it whether it can be applied in all sports Uh, but certainly where it works, it works. It absolutely works. And I think that in, in motor racing, esports will become, and it actually is, a, a major component going forward with a lot of money involved uh, for everybody, basically. So I, I think there, there's a great future there. Yep.
I agree. I you know Formula E did it. Formula One to some degree did some of it as well. Of course, this year I know which was been a, it's just been such a crazy year, and that's sort of where I, I want to lead ourselves a bit into. As I said, we we can. I'd love. To, I would have been interested to go into the European Games a bit as well because I think it's such an interesting uh, thing. But maybe we'll save that for another conversation there or other things you do. Uh, but while we sort of going a bit into the, our cool down phase here. Um, let's talk about 2020, um, the, these major events from the Olympics to, uh, to the Euro, of course, it all been moved to this year. And now, you know, we're in this year, in 2021 year, and, you know, we're still not looking that much better. What is your reading, you know, seeing what you see, uh, the conversations you're having with, again, let's stick maybe to the IOC specifically or the, or the Olympic part with Tokyo here. Where do you see, what do you see happening and or how do you see uh, Tokyo happening at all? Well, I'm, I'm not qualified to, to say whether or not Tokyo will happen or not. No, no, um, I, but your opinion, what, what I guess, I, what on I, your thoughts on I it. Can, yeah. What I can tell you is I think that um, the from what I hear, the organizing committee have done a phenomenal job in, in restructuring everything on, on the assumption and the hope, I guess, that it will proceed Uh, they've just announced that all of the sponsors have re-signed and right. stepped up with, with more revenues. Um, I think anybody who's done business in Japan, and I've done a lot uh, over the years, will will tell you that you know when it comes to Japan, you can you've got a reliable partner who will deliver, and Absolutely. if they're able to host the games on whatever basis, uh, and I suspect there probably will have to be if, if it does go ahead, and I sincerely hope it does. Uh, there will probably have to be some limitations, but whatever they do, it'll be the best it possibly could be under the circumstances. Mm. Yeah, again, it, absolutely, I agree. Uh, Japan, Japan has 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 an amazing ability to uh, to create not just great events, but just being so well organized. Um, the the fear I have is more how the international federations and you know the the, the local uh, Olympic committees how do they deal with it on the ground before they send the athletes over. I think that's always been the part I've been. Yeah, thinking about and talking about is how you create these bubbles on the ground before you send the acid over, right? Because that's the the chance you have to, uh, in a sense, weed out any anyone who might have have the virus before you send them on a plane with a bunch of other guys, right? So that's going to be an interesting process, which obviously would have to start way before you ever land in Tokyo. Once you're in Tokyo, I have no doubt that uh, the Japanese will be able to figure it out to create the bubbles and to create all the security and safeties you need. Uh, but what do you do before? You know, you got any thoughts? on that um well i can only say that you know uh, every day i read about more sports events that have been delayed um because of precisely the problems which you're describing yeah. um i it's a real challenge I mean, that's all, all i can say is is that um uh, i mean hopefully the the ability to to get the vaccine in, into people as quickly as possible um will proceed as quickly as possible hmm. um in this country it certainly has it's not been a good rollout at all yeah. uh, hopefully that that'll, that'll get better um but to, to me as, as an outsider this whole process it, it seems to me that uh, um there are challenges here uh, but it's probably too early to, to to make an assessment as to whether or not the games can or cannot be held i mean certainly i i can only tell you that from everything i hear Everybody who's involved is committed to do their very best to try and make this thing happen, and, and I sincerely hope they're successful. Yeah, yeah, me too. And and anyone who knows me knows that I'm a 
general optimist. I, I you know, I, I always see the, the, the glass half uh, full, not half empty. But uh, I have this weird uh, deja vu here that we're, when we're looking at 2021, that it really is another 220 in my view. Uh, I don't see the vaccine being the the being ready in time to save a bunch of these events and or make them easier. Uh, so I hope I'm wrong, as, and I keep saying that to everyone, but uh, I, I do believe 2021 will be another really difficult year for our industry at, at, uh, at large. Um, and, you know, so what, what do you currently in, in your current, maybe, uh, you know, current role as a, as, as your, con as a consultant, uh, any particular project you on um, where, which you can share a bit with us uh, for us as the sort of the final wrap up here? Sure. I mean, one of my newer clients is actually the, what uh, is World Lacrosse, the okay. International Lacrosse Federation. Uh, actually based in America in Colorado Springs. They have a long-term uh, but realistic Olympic ambition, mm -hmm. uh, fast-growing sport. I think people tend to think of it as a North American sport, but actually they have over 60 federations. We've set a target yeah. of 100 federations, right. stretch target, national federations, of course. Yeah. That's a stretch target, but they're well on the way to achieving that. They're reasonably well-financed. Um, good management team under the leadership of Jim Shear. Hmm. Uh, Jim, of course, used to be the chief executive of the United States Olympic Committee. Uh, it's a good project. And I must say, to be frank, I knew very little about lacrosse when I started on this. Uh, but it is a highly dynamic game, very fast, yeah. um, very, very interesting, um, played by men and women, of course. Yeah. Um, it's 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 good sport. It's it good. is a good sport. I, I I studied in the U.S. and of course that's really you know it's big in U.S. college sports. Um, you know teams competing, uh, the, the colleges competing against each other, and and I've seen it. So it is uh, it's brutal too, right? <laughs> okay. No question. Uh, they get knocked around quite a bit in that in the game there. So uh, I agree. It's it's a fun sport. Um, so that's one of your, your current projects. Awesome. Uh, well, I'm sure you will be continuously be around this industry for, for a long time, uh, as you have been already. Um, and I really enjoyed this talk here. As I said, there's probably many other things we could spend more time on or dig deeper, but uh, we also want to keep it somewhat tight. Um, sure. for our listeners here and so Andrew thank you so much uh, this was a lot of fun uh, like I said I'm sure we'll do it again and, and maybe go a little drill a bit deeper into some specific areas of of the industry here and, and, and things you've been involved in um, any last parting words here because I think you also work with some some other interesting ones like the the sports at the service of humanity uh, you know any sort of last shout out to anyone uh, you want to mention Yeah, I got a, a couple of startups. Um, quite interesting. Uh, okay. One is uh, called Hook It. Uh -huh. uh, Hook It is in the the business of measuring social media performance. Uh, it's taken us quite a while to get the startup to to the phase where it is now. But half the company has now been sold to Arrow Root Capital. Uh -huh. um, so I think that's a business with with some potential. And then a business with fantastic potential is Wait Time. And in Wait Time. We, we actually measure how long it takes you to get from the back of a line at, at a sports concession to the front of the line, how much attrition there is in the line, how long your service time was. And this is absolutely vital data, both for the concessionaires, but also for the public, because we have big screens that tell you where the concession lines are shortest. Um, this has become a really interesting business because in the pandemic, of course, we now restructured the business so actually we can measure how many people in a particular area 
Mm. So in terms of a control, the number of people you allow into somewhere, you can do this all automatically through Wait Times uh, IA technology. And uh, actually, Cisco have just become not not a partner, but uh, they're a, a business partner in 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 the company, and they're okay. they're. Cisco now offering our product to uh, to all of their venues. So wow. it's a business, a real future. I like that. And and your role is uh, you're an investor, you are uh, you know consultant or advisor, or how do you work with these uh, these startups? In both those companies, I'm an investor. Um, with Hookit, I served on the board of directors until half the company was sold. I'm now off the board, but I remain as an investor uh, and as an advisor. With wait time, I'm on the advisory board there, and I was also an, invest, an investor. Hmm, awesome. So if any of, anyone wants to get in touch with you, whether it is of a startup and, and they need some uh, executive firepower or, or anyone else, uh, how, do I, how do they get a hold of you the best way? Uh, either pick up the phone. Uh, it's uh, plus one, two, four, eight, eight, one, nine, two, one, zero, zero. Or they can email me, of course, at the Craig Company. LLC at gmail.com. Awesome, Craig. Awesome, Andrew. I, and I will uh, I will punt that out, of course, uh, in the, on the podcast. Uh, so it's, you know, people will be able to see oh. it and, and read it. And uh, like I said, you know, thank you so much. Uh, good night there in Detroit. Um, stay safe, as, as we always say now in those, in those crazy days here. And of course, another happy, happy new year here, since we are just at the beginning of this, uh, of a new interesting year, which we'll be watching and see where we are by the end of the day. I guess, uh, let's hope we have an Olympics. Let's hope we have Euro and many of the other events, uh, which were meant to be happening this year. Uh, fingers crossed there. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed, uh, the interview and, uh, as you said, let's do it again. Definitely, Andrew. We'll talk again soon. Cheers. You bet. Cheers. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.